This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. There are two rules to remember if you want to have a good time. Rules. No rules. Rule number one. Keep your friends close, but your enemies close. Rule number two. You're a dragon. Be a dragon. Ciao, Bella. This week on Double Dragon, comic Steve Osborne and I talk about the comic characters that we'll find in a George R.R. Martin story. We will be covering House of the Dragon episode by episode with categories like rogue and morally gray character and hero and villain and anti-hero. I thought a baseline of terminology might be helpful going forward. After that, I include a few excerpts of interviews I've had with Game of Thrones adjacent folk. I'll also say that even though Steve and I have been podcasting together for a couple years now, this particular podcast is fledgling. It would really help us out for you to rate and review us on iTunes. Helps our visibility, helps our numbers. You can send feedback to book at baldmove.com. Okay, here's my friend and yours, comic Steve Osborne. Steve, welcome to the very first episode of Double Dragon. I'd like to start with a question. Sure. Would you consider yourself a morally gray character? Um, yeah. Okay. All right. Because I think that that most people would consider themselves like the hero of their own narrative or something. Oh, no, not me. (laughs) Do you feel... (laughs) I'm going to want to unpack that. But do you think that most stand-up comics are self-aware enough to consider themselves morally gray characters? Uh, maybe. I mean... There's a lot of bad stand-up comics that I assume really believe that they're they're a hero on stage, and that could be either because they think they're funnier than they are, or they think they're more important than they are. All right, I I want to have this conversation because we're going to embark upon a journey through House of the Dragon together, and that means that we are going to meet a number of what Martin thinks of as gray characters. I think Martin likes to paint in shades of gray with his characters. Mm-hmm. And also I should note that, you know, Martin is very directly involved with the production of this. He's got a writing credit on several of these episodes and, you know, it's not just based on his source material, but he's actually intimately contributing involved. to it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, I'd like to go ahead and start by reading you something that Martin wrote. It's just a paragraph. It's in a work wherein he introduces Daemon Targaryen, who's one of the characters we will meet in House of the Dragon. No spoilers. uh, just, Just generally Martin's feeling about rogues. Everybody loves a rogue, though sometimes we live to regret it. Scoundrels, con men, and scallywags, ne'er do wells, thieves, cheats, and rascals, bad boys and bad girls, swindlers, seducers, deceivers, flim flam men, imposters, frauds, fakes, liars, cads, tricksters, 
They go by many names, and they turn up in stories of all sorts, in every genre under the sun, in myth and legend, and, oh, everywhere in history as well. They are children of Loki, the brothers of Coyote. Sometimes they are heroes, sometimes they are villains. More often than not, they are somewhere in between. Gray characters. And gray has long been my favorite color. It is so much more interesting than black or white. So, I like that passage because I do think it kind of reveals the the kind of characters he finds interesting. And I think it usually translates. I think usually the fans find his gray characters pretty interesting. It feels like life in and of itself is like trying to search for absolutes. And and anyone who claims to have a hold on them becomes the least trustworthy in, in you know, in my opinion, and probably others. Um, well, especially so, if we're talking about politics, right? And this is sort of, among other things, this is going to be a political thriller, and we live in a right. time of political absolute. Right, and it, and I think, especially as you start getting more to maybe the margins of the extremes, they there's maybe more belief in the absolute, you know, stronghold on on what's morally right. And they don't want necessarily want to operate in in the gray because the gray seems to like maybe that's a compromise. Like that's from a political perspective. If you're if you're somewhere in the middle, then you're then you don't really have any real beliefs. But I think the, the for a person who's searching, who's genuinely looking to to seek truth, there's going to be a vacillation between you know maybe multiple ideologies at any given time. So I think I've said something about true. I agree with all of that. By the way. I think that I've said something generally true about Martin's stories, that they they tend to be a home to gray characters and often morally gray characters, uh, what Martin is calling rogues. But I think that there's more to be said on this, and I get a little bit annoyed when people think that all of Martin's characters are morally gray. I don't think that that's true either. And I think that, for instance, like if you think of like a film like The Godfather, right? I think mm-hmm. that here, here Michael Corleone is someone who is certainly morally gray. I think it's pretty obvious that that character works as such because he's married to Kay, who is not a morally gray character. Mm-hmm. I think that you could do the same thing with a few characters in Breaking Bad, for instance. Uh, so I think I think it's important that if you want to tell a, a, an interesting, complex story about a morally great character, you're going to have to populate it every now and again with someone who is pretty much virtuous. And, of course, you're also going to have to populate this with people who are pretty much just evil all the time. Right. I'm a, I just want a little bit of nuance here as we start. I want to sort of define some terms here. Well, and I think it's important, too, like even the idea of evil uh, versus good the more the more complexity that you have in some of those especially like with, with a with a villain you understand why they're doing what they're doing and can believe that they believe that what they're doing is not necessarily evil mm-hmm. from a certain point of view right then right. Uh, you don't understand their motivations i think i think it's real easy to just go well this is the bad person this is and this is um sort of what we, i think we've run into with you know some of our religious upbringing well 
Well, the devil's there to be the devil no matter. It's whatever the opposite of good is all the time. So there's no nuance there, right? There's no... <laughs> Are you suggesting, Steve, that, yeah. <laughs> that Satan is a morally gray character? <laughs> I think he's more morally gray than we give him credit for. <laughs> I like that Martin says, look, these rogues, they're both heroes and villains and somewhere in between. So I want to talk a little bit about that because I think it's important to make a, a distinction between someone like Lando Calrissian, for instance... Mm-hmm. who I think is purposely morally gray, but he's heroic. He's a, he's a hero, right? We find out right. at the end of Return of the Jedi, he is he's heroic. And that's his character arc. He's on his way from sort of maybe untrustworthy to totally heroic, and he's kind of a rogue everywhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. So there's an example of a hero who's a rogue. And then I think that you could also find someone like... Um, Magneto. Okay, yeah. So Magneto's, uh, you know, he's lovable. You you understand his motivations. You're following him. He's a, he's a villain. That's how he's he's casted as pretty simplistically as a villain in those stories. He happens to be a roguish villain who we kind of fall have, you know fall in love with, right? Uh, um, and and there may be moments where Magneto helps the good. Oh, he, yeah, he's cause, a villain right? who. Yeah, he's a villain who you acts not, heroically at times. Right? And you may not trust his motivations, but sometimes you may need that. Mm-hmm. So I guess the the, the Lando Calrissian would be an example of a heroic rogue. Magneto, an example of a villainous rogue, right? And then, well, with the Lando too, it, it, there's there's also like kind of almost a redemption story, right? I feel like he's. He's gray in the beginning, and then you know, as he makes his way towards uh, heroism, it's uh, maybe you lose a little bit more of the gray, um, but you sure. still may, you still may be a little bit like, well, I mean, who, is he still allowed after his own self interests? And um, well, I think he, Lando's a classic capitalist, right? He's he's mm-hmm. gonna make as much money as he can. He's gonna side with the empire where he can. I don't think he actually is all of that evil. Um, other than the fact that he's, you know, just a little greedy here and there. Well, and also, if you really want to look at his motivations, because I know that's what this podcast is about, is the deconstructing the Lando mythology. But if you really <laughs> uh, look at his motivations in Cloud City, when he reveals that, heck, you know, he gave up, you know, Han and company, uh, and essentially to get Luke Skywalker. His thing was he was trying to make a deal to keep his people safe. He hasn't seen Han in a long time. He, ha- he has no idea who this Luke Skywalker kid is. Uh, he made a deal with the Empire because he really was trying to, he wanted to keep his certain amount of independence for his people. He was he was leading, you know, uh, Cloud City, essentially. Can I just so, say one thing about Lando? Mm-hmm. It could be that he's making deals despite himself because his voice is so silky smooth that even if you don't want to make a deal with him, you walk into a room, you just get seduced by that voice, and all of a sudden right. you're, you're making a deal with him. That could have happened with Darth Vader easily. Yeah, and, and also Lando could just be like he's he knows like he just loves the art of the deal, right? So that's his whole thing is because he knows how good his voice is, and the next thing you know, he runs up against James Earl Jones's pipes, and he's like, "Wait a minute, maybe I met my match." <laughs> all right, I want to I want to introduce one more nuance. All right, to the Lando uh, story. Uh, this could be a Lando adjacent conversation, but I want to make a distinction between the villain and the anti-hero. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. And the way that I usually describe this is the difference between Joaquin Phoenix's Joker and Heath Ledger's Joker. I think it's pretty clear that Heath Ledger is a villain. Now, he happens to be a really compelling villain. He's got no backstory. Any backstory he gives himself is, you know, suspect. He he has no real motivation except for he just wants to see the world burn. He wants to tear down the the structures, the institutions, the heroes, right? So he's yeah, and you don't against... get a sense. You, you don't get a sense that he's doing it because, and then I will usher in a you know a, a utopia, right? It's just the absence of. He wants to tear down heroes. Batman happens to be a hero, so that makes Heath Ledger a, a villain, a fantastic villain, fantastic, maybe one of the best villains. Whereas Joaquin Phoenix's Joker. I think is the anti-hero. Mm. He's the main character of the story. You're following him. You care about his emotions. You're fascinated with his psychology. Mm. He's an anti-hero. I don't think he's. I don't think it necessarily he's being cast as a villain unless you just look at like the last five minutes of the film. Right, and even then, it was like this. None of the strikes as as like his intent, right? And I th- I think that that makes a, a difference, right? What's what's the What's the person's intent? What are they trying to accomplish? And, well, at least, uh, or at least they're trying to accomplish something that is discernibly empathetic. This is a guy with tons of problems, and of course, he makes a lot of his own problems. In fact, a lot of what you could look through is just, I mean, it's, it's his own sort of survival. And without, mm-hmm. you know, the right safety nets and the right care, he, this is sort of what you get, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, he, it, you know, without using the the full term victim, he is a product, and his actions then become a byproduct of of something else that's more flawed. Yes, you so, could suggest that the villain is the you know that the the mental health care system in in the film Joker. Or you could say no, that's that's totally true. Or you could suggest that the villain is stand up comedy in general. Yeah, well, that's that's easy. That's an easy target. <laughs> I you know what I hadn't thought about this before but maybe the villain the true villain is Gotham City. Mm. Anyway, I think that he's a he's a wonderful example of an anti-hero. And I think it's an important distinction to make because as we watched House of the Dragon, you hear a lot of people talk about these morally gray characters. I think that we're going to meet a lot of rogues in this story, no doubt about it. And some of them will be heroes, and some of them will be villains, and some of them will be anti-heroes. And I think that it's good to have sort of a baseline of common categories as we start talking about this show. Sounds great. I can't wait. I can't wait for this. So, since we've had some Lando discussions, and and you know you uh, discussed Martin, and and to say you know and the, the mentioning of Martin as a contributor. The idea being that okay, this you know new story that that at least is not only drawing from the the, the original work, but it's also it's being facilitated by the creator of the original work. But I think it's interesting when we talk about sort of the Star Wars world, how there were some thought that maybe maybe Lucas having less handling of it might be a good thing, right? Like let some of the other oh, stories take their own. So I'm wondering if there's any any concern, or yeah. like, cause I wanna, like I said, I want to have with the, with the Martin, it's like, oh good, his involvement adds a certain level of credibility. Now granted, mm. the, the Game of Thrones legacy is not as 
pronounced as as the Star Wars one. But yeah, I'm wondering I think, if there's any thought to that. Yeah, I do have a little... I haven't thought about it too much until now, but I was just thinking as you were talking about our Cocoons of Horror episode on Pet Cemetery, mm-hmm. how Stephen King is sort of this master novelist, and yet you give him pretty much full control over the making of a movie and it didn't work out so well. Right. I don't think that I'm concerned about that with Martin for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, I think his he's he's sort of been a television writer since the 80s. So he's mm-hmm. got a long history with Twilight Zone and other other things like that. But Beauty and the Beast, I don't know. Were you ever a Beauty and the Beast fan? Uh, the uh, Perlman-Hamilton joint? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know that I ever watched an episode. My mom used to love that show. <laughs> um, it's one of the very few shows my mom and I would watch together. Yeah, well, it's funny because to this day, having never seen an episode of Beauty and the Beast, I always, anytime I see Ron Perlman, I go, oh, it's the Beast. <laughs> he is the Beast. I don't put him in like, oh, it's Hellboy or oh, the Sons of <laughs> Anarchy. Nope, it's, he's the Beast. He's the Beast from a show I never watched. <laughs> sure. Yeah, it's a very memorable character, even if you've never seen the show. Um, kind of like McConaughey in Reign of Fire. That's right, but man, <laughs> could Perlman could Perlman just steal the cover of a TV guide? I'd love to delete McConaughey from everything and insert Ron Perlman in all of those roles, just to <laughs> see what would happen. As the Beast? Yeah, as the, of course as the Beast. Yeah, otherwise, otherwise you're confused. <laughs> all right, so... I'm not worried about that with Martin because for the first four seasons of Game of Thrones, and those were four really good seasons, Martin would be credited as an author of at least one of those episodes. Mm. And usually those are really good episodes. So I I don't really have a concern about him managing his own material. I think he's got a pretty good track record for that. Did that answer your question about Martin? Yeah, because I'm just curious to see what people think. Like, if, 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 uh, because there are so many folks wedded to this and wedded to Martin as a, as a part of that, right? You know, I mean, again, if we're going to draw parallels, people are pretty excited about the prequels of Star Wars until that happened. <laughs> you and I included. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so, so, I mean, are you as, I mean, are you as anticipatorily uh, torqued up for this as, as you would be for anything Game of Thrones. I, I did my best, Steve, to, to not be torqued. But you're torqued. I, I couldn't help but be torqued. Yeah. I was having a conversation with the, the guy who um, does all the, invents all the languages for this show. Uh-huh. And so he's actually like, has looked at the scripts. Mm-hmm. And um, would make sense if he was putting language in it. Yeah, yeah. He didn't look at all of the, you know, everything, but he looked at. He had to look at uh, uh, a good amount of it. And he's a guy I trust his sensibilities. We tend to have similar tastes when it comes to stuff. And his name is David Peterson. He says it's some of the best dialogue he's ever read. Oh wow! So for me, it's like. I'm pretty sure that these actors are going to be amazing, and if you've written good dialogue for them, I'm not really worried about the special effects. Right. Uh, I guess you know you could have you could have plot holes and whatnot, but then you got Martin; he's pretty good at you know constructing a plot. How can I not be excited for this? 
Um, if there's no water scenes, no ships. That's true. There's a character who's uh, his his whole thing is he sails the he sails the seas. He's he's a <laughs> he's a maritime Targaryen. Ooh, a maritime Targaryen. <laughs> I gotta get that action figure. Which is a little curious because don't they ride dragons? Like, why would they need the ships? <gasps> Water dragons, bro. <laughs> they got pontoon dragons. <laughs> All right, so um, people can expect. Steve and I to hash it up after every episode, and then they can also expect every now and again, I will um, I'll bring on a professional medievalist to talk a little bit about the antiquated parts of the show and give us some <laughs> insight into the inspiration, the history, and the literature that inspired. Have you ever brought in an amateur medievalist? <laughs> Pretty sure. Honestly, Steve, I think you might be talking to an amateur medievalist. Oh, because it's certainly not my specialty, but I've spent the last two years. Interviewing them and watching Game of Thrones episodes over and over again. I thought it was just somebody who's like, like, ah, uh, you know, I've, I, I've seen some, I've, you know, I watched Reign of Fire and, uh, you know, I, well, I've seen a me... Knight's Tale. I've seen a Knight's Tale, and so I think I got a pretty good handle on. I've been to a Renaissance fair or two, and so I... they're speaking <laughs> with some sort of, I think... you know, <laughs> just, honestly, like, no, no, I think, I think that's what a knight would do. <laughs> I also rewatched uh, Dragonheart recently. Oh man, good for you! <laughs> How many times have you seen it prior? I've, I I don't think I've ever seen it all the way through. I think it's most well known because the dragon is voiced by Sir Sean Connery. Yeah, I sure did not remember that um, Quaid was the 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 lead knight. Oh yeah, in the show. <laughs> yeah yeah. Yeah, Dennis Quaid and kind of like Randy Not Randy Quaid. Let me just. No, that would be something. (laughs) The movie that nobody asked for. (laughs) I just like that they thought we're going to need someone who is believably a medieval knight. Who can who who could we get opposite (laughs) of Sean Connery? Because you can believe Sean Connery is a dragon. Dennis Quaid, perfect, perfect. Can he do a British accent? Nope. Is he going to try to do a British accent? Nope. Oh, good. That's even better. Is he going to try to talk like he's a little bit uh, chivalrous? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what he's going to do. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while since I've seen that, and uh, it'll probably stay that way unless unless I get assigned it on Cocoon Support. It might happen. It may happen on this podcast. I mean, we named it Double Dragon. That's true. <laughs> do we feel compelled to always have, like, one other little dragon piece? In every episode, so that way we've got double your dragons, double your fun. I think that we at least need two dragons if we're gonna if we're gonna cover a show. It's got to at least have two dragons. Got it. So I don't think that Dragonheart would work because because Connery is the last dragon in that. So, okay, so so we couldn't even do Barry Gordy's last dragon because he's the last dragon, right? I do think no, we can because at one point in the film, they're actually showing a Bruce Lee movie. Ah, so, in the so film, so that would so be the second dragon. Gotcha. And there's no flashbacks in in Dragonheart where he's like, "I remember when there should be lots of dragons." I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> they only had enough claymation for one dragon. Yeah, yeah, barely had that. They ran out of clay because it's a huge dragon, <laughs> and it's all clay and it's all it's practical. Life size, life size claymation. It, Dennis dragon. Quaid was mostly clay.
Here are the highlights coming up this week on Bald Move. All new Pulp and Prestige this week. On Tuesday, we'll cover the latest episode of The Walking Dead, The Ones Who Live on Pulp. And on Thursday, we'll catch up with the latest Samurai subterfuge on FX Hulu's Shogun. Then on our House of the Dragon feed, Anthony puts on his Maester's class on Monday. And then on Thursday, Steve joins him for Electric Bookaloo as they continue their discussion of George R. R. Martin's A Clash of Kings. Find these and many of our other great podcasts by searching for Bald Move Pulp or Prestige in your favorite podcast app. FX is adapting James Clavell's best-selling novel, Shogun, into a 10-part miniseries this spring. Set in the Shogunate period of Japan at the turn of the 15th century, Shogun depicts the rise of a feudal lord to Shogun, as seen through the eyes of a shipwrecked English sailor. It's loosely based on the real-life exploits of William Adams and Tokugawa Ieyasu. Shogun has already been successfully adapted back in 1980 with a widely acclaimed miniseries starring Richard Chamberlain featuring intricate plots, political scheming, complex characters, and thrilling action. This time, husband and wife team Justin Marks and Rachel Kondo try to recapture the successes of the novel and early adaptations while increasing the levels of historical and cultural accuracy that are often perceived as flaws of this and similar works. Starring Hiroyuki Sanada from The Last Samurai, Mortal Kombat, and John Wick 4, with Cosmo Jarvis of Peaky Blinders, Raised by Wolves, etc., joining the truly massive cast required to bring this complex world to life. Join Aaron and I each week as we deep dive into each episode, uncovering the mysteries, the intrigue, and the glory of Shogun. Shogun premieres on FX Hulu Tuesday, February 27th at the two-part debut. Our podcast will release each Thursday thereafter. Get our Shogun coverage by searching for Bald Move Prestige in your favorite podcast app. And now an excerpt of my interview with David J. Peterson. He has absolutely written portions of dialogue for these shows. It just so happens that he writes the words that require subtitles. Okay, here's an excerpt of my conversation with David Peterson. So oftentimes with historical voices, we will notice that a certain kind of voice or a certain person, a certain personality prefers a particular for, you know formula and sometimes the formula is sort of an informality uh, sometimes it's actually a grammatical error but they they repeat it over and over again because it sounds good to their ear or something like that mm. or it was an error that their father made because they were mm-hmm. from this particular region or something like that so when you're writing for different characters do you create idiosyncratic grammatical errors for the different characters in the show? That's the most difficult part. I certainly have done it, but usually it's for non-native speakers that are speaking oh, the language. Nice. Like when Tyrion is sort of trying to fumble his way through uh, High Valyrian, right? Yeah, Tyrion, but also Daenerys. Um, not with High Valyrian, but Dothraki. Sure, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's actually something that's very difficult to capture, especially with a language that... Uh, doesn't have as much vocabulary as you're used to having, say, in English, which we have tons. And so we can use um, vocabulary choice uh, to demonstrate, to basically to characterize, you know. Um, But that that is something that I was dealing with in House of the Dragon, because there's uh, one character who 
just, you know, as he's speaking English and as they're giving these lines in English, he just, he speaks in a very different way from the other people he's talking to. Um, mm. Not necessarily less formal, but perhaps more flippant. Sure. <laughs> and I, I really wanted to be able to capture that in the Valerian. I think I know the character you're talking about. So don't, I won't name him, uh, <laughs> but I think I know the character you're talking about. Yeah. And so like that was that was kind of a difficult thing. That was a really it was one of the challenges that I faced this season. It's like, well, how how can I kind of convey that sense in Valerian? I know yeah. how to do it in English, but how do I do it in Valerian? That was so that was a challenge. Um, and I, I expect it will be an ongoing one. Um, sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'll keep at it. Do you feel like you've done do you feel like there's more high Valerian in this first season than you saw in any of the ten seasons of Game of Thrones? Um I think so. This is probably the most high Valerian I've done in a season. Uh I would say. I was really uh, pleasantly surprised by that. So, so yeah, I think this is the, it's not the most work I've done on a season, but it's the most high Valyrian um, okay. that I've done. Yeah. And I don't know if you're able to reveal us or not, but were there any other languages that they had you work on? Uh, no, not this time. Okay. I would love to see, um, I would love to see a show for the Game of Thrones, for the Song of Ice and Fire universe. I would love to see them do what they're doing now with Star Trek. Uh, which is opening it up, giving it to other people and allowing them to take different spots of the world or different times and do things. Because mm -hmm. I think there's a very interesting show that sees somebody traveling in and around um, the free cities. Uh, and, and I would love to be able to do those languages. Uh, I mean, of the, mm. you know, so-called bastard Valyrian languages, I would say that, uh, the ones spoken in like uh, Slaver's Bay were the ones that readers were the least interested in, um, but they were the only ones I got a chance to do. I would love a chance to do, mm -hmm. you know, Bravosi, Tairoshi, Pentoshi, and so on. I think that you might see something like what you're talking about. I think that there's a lot of other shows that George is sort of happy to give over, um, but even though these things have they have permissions on these things. They have not been greenlit. And I think, I think that folks are waiting to see if this is a continued moneymaker. I think so too. I think like both uh, HBO and the fans are waiting to see. And so mm. um, it's very difficult. I've, I've realized this over the years now, it's very difficult to read a script and tell what it's going to be like when you see it on screen mm. and to tell if it's going to be good or not. Um, it's very, very difficult. I've had experiences where I read things and I thought they were really great. And then they played out a little prosaically on screen. And then I've had complete opposite reactions where it's like, okay, so this is what happens. Mm -hmm. And I see it like, wow, that was really cool. It's yeah. just super hard to tell. Uh, but what I know about, what I know about this uh, series is that the, the parts that I'm involved with, like the writing that I'm reading is better than anything that I've worked on, um, wow. I think outside of like Penny Dreadful, uh, which for me is the favorite, my favorite show that I've worked on, um, even though I hated working on it. 
It's funny how that happens sometimes. Um, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. It was your favorite thing to work on, but you hated working on it? No, it was my favorite show that I have worked on, oh, like to I watch see. as a viewer. I and I think it was brilliant, <laughs> but I hated working on it. I see. I see. You know, that is not the worst news for Game of Thrones fans to hear. That yeah. someone who's worked on the show is, is so far, you know, there's there's a pot. You've had a positive experience so far with the dialogue. Yeah, no, I think it's just reading it. It was really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was one of the things that made it feel like a little bit of an extra challenge because it's like, hmm. it's, it's like, Jesus, they're, you know, they're not phoning this in. I really, <laughs> I really want to bring That's my A game to, to this. That's absolutely great to hear. Also, yeah, by ahead. the way, just really quick, it was also mm-hmm. like, a real pleasure working on this because like i've worked on a ton of different shows and movies now and i have had a very drastic swing in experiences from show to show and it was really nice working on this show so that was nice as well uh all good news all welcome news thank you so much david right on here is medievalist Jana matthews you know, as a medievalist, I couldn't help but read the, the sex scenes and think about a couple of things. So the missionary position was the only legal sex position. Is um, that right? I had, it, no, I had no idea it, that there was legal sex positions. The only legal sex position. I mean, all you need to do is sort of peruse medieval artwork and, um, you know, and the, the sort of marginalia on the comments and illustrations from medieval mm-hmm. manuscripts mm-hmm. to know that that was not the only sex position that, you know, people engaged in, but mm-hmm. um, was sort of viewed as sort of the only thing that is like holy. And the reason why is because it, it was sort of thought that anything other than missionary position would... Um, would conf- you know would confuse gender roles? It was uh, it was it was some it was something that was something shifty, right? So there's all the preservation of preserving literally kind of like the man on top mm, in a sense. Mm-hmm. And then Albertus Magnus in the 13th century wrote this really great because you know you can never get enough in talking about people wanted more specificity, and so he said, "Here are the five sexual positions in order from most okay to least okay." And so it goes: missionary number one, side by side sitting, standing, and what he uses the term turgo, which actually just means him from behind. So all of those, um, but but what we happen here, and so the, if, if the first sex act that they have is missionary position or, or something akin to it, the second act, the second time that they have sex is with um, Shay on top. Right. And so, you know, you, you can't help but read that as a form of um, within this particular position of as, as much as they as much as the part of the negotiation that happens beforehand is I want you to act in the role of the the, the dutiful the dutiful wife, you know, mm-hmm. um, lover who kind of like says everything that I want to see, like literally kind of cleans me up, washes my feet, rubs my aches and pains away. Um, and the very, you know, sort of the second sex act, like she is taking on the role of of being the dominant figure here. Um, and, and so that also that it sort of speaks to the sense of, of agency that, that she's existing. And again, whether or not, right. whether or not that was intentional or not, but it, it definitely popped out to me as something that was unique and surprising yes. and also kind of great. And I think it does mirror that early interaction that they have. Yeah. I think that Tyrion, Tyrion always, or I shouldn't say always, but a lot of the time Tyrion will use humor to disarm a would-be foe and to flip the power dynamic in a way. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And this is exactly what she does to him. He says, look, I'm I'm Tyrion. 
uh, people call me the imp. Mm-hmm. And she says, I'm Shay, and men call me often. Mm-hmm. And he can't help but admire her for her mind. I think he sees something of, uh, I don't know if he sees an equal. I think that that might be too much to foist yeah. onto Tyrion. You know, he's he's certainly a man of his time, right? Sure. Um, and in many other ways, he's he's a elite wealthy, powerful man of his time. But I think he recognizes that this is someone that will entertain me uh, intellectually as well. Yeah. And so for her to kind of exchange barbs with him does foreshadow the kind of sex that Tyrion is going to be able to have with her. And now an excerpt from Martin's co-author, Elio Garcia. We start getting the story from George of how a Song of the Fire came to be. You know, everyone knows the story of how he, the first thing he had was finding a, a dead dire wolf yeah. in, the, in the summer snow, right? Mm-hmm. And that launched him to writing a few chapters, but he was still working in Hollywood. And then he decided to write this trilogy. So he was writing a trilogy. Just to clue people in who don't know this story. So originally, A Song of Ice and Fire was meant to be a trilogy. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. And then he thought... Maybe it's maybe it's not three books. Maybe it's four books, right? Yeah, and then and then you know he launched into the second book, uh, Clash of Kings, and very soon in that process he realized, well, no, I'm wrong. This is more than four books as well. And he stopped everything. He said he stopped all his work, and he started uh, outlining and 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 sort of structuring and thinking a bit about exactly how he was going to get. So he said it's six books. Now he stuck to six books for a very long time. It's now seven. Maybe it'll be more. I don't know. I can't say anything. <laughs> I won't say anything about that. But he. But basically, around the time of the second book, he said, okay, it's no longer a trilogy, it's no longer four books, it's six books. And he's created a pretty broad plan that he's trying to stick to as best he can. So A Game of Thrones is a book that was born out of that initial trilogy. And at the end of it, he thought, ah, it's running a little long. I'll cut off some of it and I'll put it at the start of the, the, the next book. But what always struck me about this particular bit is how was George going to make the whole story move that quickly? What did he think was going on? Mm. What is it are the things that he added when he said, okay, it's six books. I need to add. I mean, I know I have like the main story threads that I wanted to do. They're going to take longer than I thought. So I have to fill in gaps. I have to create additional plots to kind of fill in the story. And around the year about 1999 2000 we're communicating with george regularly on our website because we're doing uh heraldry we're doing you know we're answering questions we're kind of pointing out mistakes and he's sometimes like you know he's using us for to help him like remember details right. that he had written earlier yeah. and all that stuff and he said you know i i just got around to completing the targaryen family tree because when he started a Game of Thrones, he like he had started writing, and then he said, "I'll create the the list of kings, and I'll drop down little details." But he didn't have a a whole family tree, right? And this and it's is a, after, it's something yeah. of a tangled family tree. <laughs> extremely, it's it's an extremely incestuous. Um, the Julio Claudians have nothing on them, um, and. And another thing that kind of developed out of that, and it has to do with the Hedge Knight, which is a, a novella written in the, which is a, a prequel kind of to *As Always in Fire*, is 
he creates a whole black fire thing, right? Right. The black fires. The black fires did not exist prior to sometime around the end of Clash of Kings and the start of the Rising uh, so, Swords. So one of the things that made him think this is bigger than I thought was the sort of the black fire pretenders that we yeah. meet that we meet toward the end of dance. I I guess we meet throughout dance, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, at least, well, at least we believe there. You know, there there is the possibility that maybe we're not. But you know, I yeah. I fall on the side that I fall on the side that George is is, is drawing. You know, I saw as a fire started a little bit as a a kind of a Wars of the Roses made into a fantasy. Sure, sure. And sure. if you know the history of Wars of the Roses, you did have pretenders show mm-hmm. up pretending to be uh one of the princes in the tower uh and so on. So I. I think George said, okay, great. I'll draw from that. I'll have a pretender prince, and that'll be part of the story. Mm. So this pretender prince, when we discover, you know, when Tyrion uh, meets Illyrio, and he learns about, he's going to go meet Griff, and then he meets his young Griff, who is apparently Prince Aegon, the son of Rhaegar. Yeah. Um, and all these details around him. And I said, okay, well, wait a second. George didn't invent any of that when he was writing a Game of Thrones. He had no idea about it. There's no way Arya could have overheard any of those details in this conversation because those details have not been invented yet, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, but then the question is: is what is this? What are they doing? I think Varys and Illyrio's role in the initial trilogy and, and what Arya overhears is perhaps very different from what the George, the gardener, yeah, ended up developing out of them sure so to me like this this is this is like one of the most intriguing pieces of the puzzle about what the story would have been to begin with hmm. um and i have you know I, I i have this notion personally and this is again i i, I want to clarify because we, i've never discussed this with george i don't have any insight hmm. beyond the things that he has told everybody so this is already. an elio garcia independent thought <laughs> absolutely independent. Okay. all right um, my belief is that George's initial idea was that Varus and Illyrio were going to tie into the others and the White Walker, that they were wittingly or unwittingly puppets of who's ever attacking from beyond the wall. Oh my goodness. And that they were destabilizing the realm just in time. For the White Walkers to be ready to make their attack. That's so interesting. Oxford medievalist Caroline Larrington. And one of the interesting things that I've been researching recently is where Martin got the idea for the moon door and for the sky cells. Oh, you know, tell me. Kind of a, he gets it from the, the French writer Maurice Drouin whose series of books, The Accursed Kings in English, Les Rois Maudits, uh, Martin is a huge fan of. Mm. And in Drone's account, when poor Edward II is imprisoned in Berkeley Castle, where he eventually meets his death, the floor of the cell that he's kept in slopes down towards this kind of open drain almost. And so it's not like having an open wall that you could you can kind of slide off and outwards but the idea is that um this well in the middle of the cell has dead animals in it. there's a kind of miasma coming up which they hope is is going to kill the king oh. 
in such a way that nobody can be accused of murdering him. Oh, and he's he's in a kind of paranoid state anyway. And the fact that the floor slopes down towards this well makes him really jumpy and nervous all the time. So it's not like he's kind of scrabbling like like Tyrion is going to have to. Um, but nevertheless, it's it's you can see how Martin takes that little detail from right. the historical novel and kind of amps it up into the both the moon door and the sky cells. It's, yes. it's a fascinating uh, point of identification. Yeah, that's interesting. That's that's fascinating parallel. And if the only way out is down, sort of representing death down there, you can kind of see how Martin gets that idea. Yeah, and you can see how, well, when we get to the chapter where the moon door is going to be revealed, you're going to start wondering who's going to be going through that moon door <laughs> before That's right. before we get out of the eerie. Yeah, all right. Hey, I, man, I always learn so much talking with you. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Not at all. It's been great. I look forward to our next meeting. It's probably appropriate here to say a word about myself and a word about Steve. I'm an academic. I study ancient history and ancient religions, and I also write about pop culture from time to time. I've written a couple books on Game of Thrones. My co-host, Steve Osborne, is a stand-up comedian. You can usually catch him at San Francisco Punchline. He's got his own show up in Healdsburg. Steve and I just completed our full rewatch of A Game of Thrones. He was a late adopter. I've watched every episode a bunch of times. And more importantly, we just have fun talking about television together. Between now and the pilot episode, Steve and I have been doing a rewatch of Game of Thrones, and I will be publishing our coverage of Season 8 on this feed. I watched Hot Fuzz again last night with my son. Mm -hmm. Low-key, great Game of Thrones (laughs) acting. True. There's at least three characters in Game of Thrones that got their start in Hot Fuzz. You, it's, it's possible that Game of Thrones is actually a Hot Fuzz spinoff. <laughs> I'll buy it. I laughed hard. My, I think my son was not quite getting it. But and by the time it gets to the third act and everything kind of goes nuts, he was all in. Oh, good. But here's what I didn't remember. The trolley boy who says yarp. Right. That's uh, the hound. That's the hound, yeah. <laughs> I I it took me I was in I was at least a good hour into the film when I realized, is that the hound? <laughs> that's amazing. He's amazing. Also you have a Walder Frey. Uh he's the guy with like the cache of weapons in his oh, shed. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think that also the chief of police was like he was like the the head maester of the citadel that gives Sam like barf duty, barf and diarrhea uh, I think duty. You might be right. So at least three characters from Game of Thrones. I thought that was nice. Well, when do you, when do you think you're gonna start season eight? It's possible tonight. I don't know. Uh, we have uh, we have a sort of a tentative plan, but Heather's not feeling well, so we may mm. be in, which would certainly lend itself to sure. eight. I, lo- I, lo- I am telling you, I am so excited to talk about eight episode. I mean, season eight. Mm. I have like without having seen it. I've just to me, this is this is the big run up. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm giddy. 
I'm giddy for probably all the wrong reasons. <laughs> but because like, I'm just like, I lo- I'm just, I'm looking at these and like Heather's probably so tired of it. She's just like, let's just watch this thing. And I'm like, yeah, but look at these tomato meters. Like it's like 92 on the first one of season eight. And you're like, hey, this looks pretty good. Then like yeah. drops like 87. And you're like, okay, it's still a B plus. Then it's like 73. And you're like, well, that's unfortunate and then it's like 53 and then it's like 42 and then it's like 40 and i was like the guy just stopped studying for the final (laughs) it's like the guy realized all i need is a c to graduate exactly at this point he realized look man i'm not i'm not going i'm not gonna have any ropes hanging around my neck it's like all i needed is a c to graduate and clearly i've done enough work to pass this class. <laughs> well, I took a, I I took a absolutely stats. phoning in this final exam. Took a stats class, and what they did was they had you monitor all your extra credit and everything. And part of the part of the way they teach you stats was to figure out statistically at the end of the year what you needed to get on your um, on your final. And I was like, I need to get twenty percent on my final to finish this class with an A. <laughs> so that's what this feels like. Now, now let <laughs> me ask you a question about that. If it was me, I'd make it a little game, and I'd think, how do I get as close to 20 as possible? That's kind of what I was shooting for. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard to get 20. Like, Right. It's, it's hard to get 20. You feel like you could just sort of, like, accidentally get, like, 50%, right? Exactly. I mean, like, so, so, like, I'm not failing. On top of that, teachers don't like to give out 20s. Like, they will... They'll put you as close to like that sort of lowest passing grade possible, yeah. Just because they don't want the the. I, I I'm speaking as a professor, college professor here. They do not like to have that conversation in the office two weeks after the final. You're not even thinking yeah. about the class anymore, and some student comes and says, "But did I really deserve this?" So man, you just want to pass people. It's just this. <laughs> So anyway, getting 20 on an exam is really difficult. That's awesome. Do you remember what you got? I don't. I get it. I ended up getting a pretty good grade because I was just like, I didn't even really study. I was like, dude, I know all this. And so it's like, I think I answered enough to where I was like, I think I'm going to leave now. I used to have little games I'd play with myself in certain classes where I'd be like, I want to be the first one done with this test. Oh, yeah. And I'm going to do as well as I can. But that's a secondary goal. For sure. I'm oh, going to be sure. the first. In that way, I was a little bit like Weiss and Benioff with the end of Game of, or Game of Thrones. <laughs> you know, we could do 10 episodes, <laughs> but we could also just go home right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'm pretty. So I had a dinner. I was at a dinner party the other night with some big time Game of Thrones fans. Uh-huh. And they know they know my journey. So they were very respectful, but it was very hard for them. And so, like, I mean, Heather and I are both like, just shut it. Just shut it. And they're like, dude, hurry up. We want to talk about it, which I think was fascinating, right? They watch it all real time, and they want to talk with me about it, right? So I think there's there's still this this element, right? There's still this, I think, an affection. It's There's Um, still an open wound. I I really think that for a lot of us, it's kind of like, did that really happen? Awesome. Because I just feel like... There ought to be a season nine to kind of undo some of that stuff. An El Camino. <laughs> there was a, like a serious petition signed by like thousands of people to re-film season eight. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So there you go. So that's fascinating. Yeah. And so the, so one guy was like, it's not so bad. He's all, it's not good, but 
it's not as bad as everyone says. And then another guy was like, you're going to fucking hate it. <laughs> and I'm like, that's that's very strong. He's like, you are going to fucking hate it. And this is what this is what generates so much dissension in the ranks because you have some people and I think I might fall in the I think I might fall in the first guy's camp. It's like it was it really as bad as we as all that. I mean, come on. Is it really as bad as all that? And then every now and again I'll like lapse into that other that that that, that like the Smeagol <laughs> Gollum approach to season 8. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Yeah, and but then also the guy that said he, that I'm gonna fucking hate it was like his favorite characters were Joffrey and Ramsay. So I don't know. Right, I think if your favorite characters are Joffrey and Ramsay, the reason you like the show is because it's ruthless, right? Right. You're like, I'm in. I'm in on this show because they will cut all. They will straight up cut off the head of Sean Bean. Right. Right. That's why I'm in. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's kind of like other people are saying, yeah, but uh, it's kind of. I don't want to. It's kind of a fantasy <laughs> narrative. I mean, yeah, I don't want to go through that much reality. And that's I think that's been Heather's standpoint too, where she's just like, she's much more like because she also she's got a different relationship with fantasy genre than I do. Um, I don't have much of a relationship with the fantasy genre. To be, I mean, I do and I don't. Like, I mean, I, I don't. It's not my favorite usually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for her, I think it's like she's grown up with a lot of it, like really enjoying it. Um, and there is there is a tendency to be like, yeah, you may go through some dark spots, but you come out with there. There is sort of a happily ever after uh, hope. Right. Like, to you know, you know yeah. even in some of the darker tales. Um, and then and that happier ever after is like truly like an ever after type thing. Like it ends up being like, no, this is like that. This problem is major and it is resolved. And heroes and heroines had something to do with it, right? So I think that, the, so I, I could see that being the like the two, like kind of two major camps for something like this, right? Mm-hmm. Which is the the like, dude, I like a show that just shows no mercy, and then another group going like, I will deal with the lack of mercy as long as I get my happily ever after. Um, mm-hmm. So I think I think I truly find myself somewhere in between because I don't mind a dark ending. Um, well, I think uh, I think that you want a resolution that makes sense of the the story and the journey you've taken, right? Right. If you do Lord of the Rings and at the end of the day Sauron winds up on the, you know, ruling Middle-earth, right. It doesn't make sense because you actually don't know who Sauron is. Sure. Uh, you know, Sauron's just this big nameless, you know, magical guy without I mean, how many lines does he actually have, right? Right. So I don't think it makes sense to put that guy on the Iron Throne. At the same time, we have... It doesn't, make, it doesn't always make sense to, that that is, can be defeated by some plucky uh, little people. Right, right, right. But you want... All right, so you want it to make sense, and at the same time, you don't want to feel... You don't want it to feel like every other thing you've ever seen in your life, right? Sure. So to do it, so the trick is to do it in such a way that you've made sense of the story that you've told, and yet it feels unique in some way. It's it's worth you know it was worth the ride in some way. Sure, um, that's really hard to do, actually. Well, it's really hard to do, 
And but the, what I find fascinating is that they it sounds as though the showrunners did something even more impossible. And that is to make everybody upset. <laughs> yeah, pretty much everyone. That's the part that I find, I think, the most compelling. And to me, I feel like we owe, we owe them some credit. Rick, how you doing, buddy? You, you don't know what it's like out there. Hey, man, do, do you even know what it's like out there? No, not really. I've been mostly kind of flying around in helicopters, carving likenesses of Michonne into cell phones, that kind of thing. What is it like out there? Oh, well, I think it's time to find out, man. Last I saw your wife, Michonne, was out uh, following a giant wagon train. That that sounds pretty weird, but it seems like a family-friendly outfit. I mean, she's got RJ and Judah with her, right? Um, actually, she kind of left them to be raised by... Negan and Daryl. Well, crap. Hold on, let me get my boots. All right, well, Rick is getting ready. Aaron and I are too. We're preparing to once again recommission The Watching Dead out of mothball status to find out what's going on with Rick and Michonne, the ones who live. The six-part miniseries premieres Sunday, February 25th on AMC, and we'll be ready with our full episodic coverage each Tuesday. And afterwards, who knows? Maybe we'll check out Dead City. Find our coverage for The Ones Who Live by searching for The Watching Dead or Bald Move Pulp wherever you listen to podcasts. That if they can if they can come up with something that takes all the factions and unites them, mm-hmm. I mean, who, who can do that? I mean, how do you, because I mean, that seems hard. That That is trying to get 20% on a final. Like trying to do it. If they tried to do it, we owe them an apology. <laughs> oh man! Because they united all the kingdoms of nerds to a common enemy, and, and you know they, what they did. And they took they took the the mantle. Well, I fucking mean, fucking geniuses, dude. I haven't even seen the ending, and I think they're. I'm just. I'm. I'm so pro these guys. Um, really, Weiss and Benioff sacrificed themselves because mm-hmm. they gave up both their parallel universe project and the Star Wars yeah <laughs> their their Star Wars project just to unite the kingdoms against themselves so, so talk about bravery you want to talk about courage you want to talk about breaking the wheel <laughs> you know it we really spent, does make we spend me so much time fighting amongst ourselves that we never realized it really does make me appreciate Rocky uh, so much more <laughs> because the way Rocky ends is like you want it to end the way you every other sports movie has ended. Right. And yet it doesn't do that. And yet, but you also feel like, Oh no, that actually is the perfect ending. Right. So that's, that's genius. And Sly Stallone did it. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. That's true. <laughs> That's true. You sure did. So, what, what what happened to your hat? <laughs> All right, I gotta go make dinner. Alrighty, I'll talk to you later. See ya. So, if you've been following us up through season seven over at the Electric Bookaloo podcast, you will be able to 
finish that rewatch with us on this feed here. I need to thank Tobias Hrgreen for his beautiful intro music. You can check out one of his bands, and I'll link that in the show notes. Tobias, wonderful stuff. Thank you so much. Then I'll mention that our cover art was an original piece by Chase Stone. Look up Chase Stone Art. This is a piece that Aaron and I bought for our Gods of Thrones book. And my daughter, Nessa, who's a graphic artist, helped me adapt that artwork for this podcast. So thanks to Tobias. Thank you to Chase Stone. Thank you to Nessa Ladon. Finally, thanks to Aaron and Jim for giving us a platform. And that is all for this week. Thank <laughs> you.